Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Matthew Terry, founder and CEO of Suede, and welcome to People in Sales, Not Sales People, where we analyze the person behind the salesperson. I'm so, so, so excited to introduce you all to Jorn. Jorn, how are you doing today? Doing good, doing good. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, founder and of uh, Redis, uh, Reditus, I apologize. Uh, super excited to dive into that. But what I would love to do is start all the way back from the beginning and really just dive into your story because I believe you have a unique one, very unique one. You've been a sales executive, account account manager, head of customer success, uh, done tons of different founder and startup uh, type type things, hasn't raised money before. Um, and I just want to like understand kind of the, the tips and tricks and just your experience through it all. So we'll just dive right, right in, right into the beginning. You, you started, um, you started out in Skitart and tell me about a Skitart and, and what, what you did there and how it went. Yeah. Yeah. Skitart is basically like, um, it's a famous pie in a region where I grew up basically. So it's like really local. Uh, but everybody knew that pie. Like, I think everybody has a business, right? Which is really famous. Like, you have this one thing you really love about your own region. Um, the bakery who made it, he uh, got, he retired. And then he got taken over and that guy went bankrupt. But the clever thing he did, he actually made that pie a trademark or a registered trademark. So I learned uh, when I had my... Um, uh, do you call it like a anniversary for, or like I was my birthday, sorry. Um, I wanted to buy a ski tart. I could not find it. So I was like, what happened? As in, because I, I, I've been talking about it for weeks and I thought like, ah, oh, let me just buy a ski tart for the people at the office. I yeah, wasn't really able to find it. And I found like something similar. But then when I brought it to the office, it was still frozen. It wasn't the right experience. So I kind of digged into like what happened. And then I learned that the guy uh, retired, um, he got taken over, then the guy went bankrupt, but also noticed that the trademarks were at this place where you go bankrupt, they they hold it, right? And people can bid on it, actually buy it. So with my crazy face, I just thought like, <laughs> let, let's just do a bid. I started really low. I think I just offered like 500 euros or something like that. Mm -hmm. The curator said like, yeah, no, we're not going to do it. I was like, well, give me a number then. Like, what are you thinking? So in the end, a couple of conversations. I bought the uh, trademark, uh, I built a website, uh, found a bakery who wants to bake the pie for me. And in the end, I did drop shipping with a, with a pie, basically. Drop shipping with a pie. That's amazing. So you bought this trademark and was the recipe like online or something like that? No, like we found the... I mean, in the end, everybody could make it, but I think like uh, the, how it uh, got made, uh, we found the guy who made the, the bottoms of the pie, like it was a, a factory uh, up north in the Netherlands. So we um, agreed with him that he's going to bake them again for this bakery. So he got the real rights, I guess, to to use the real uh, the bottoms. So um, people loved it again. Like I, I went to Christmas markets again and people purchased okay. it. Uh, like I Love even... It. With Christmas mornings, I would drive in my own car, uh, bring people the pie, uh, and then go to Christmas dinners after. <laughs> That's incredible. I love that, man. What happened to it? I mean, I was working full-time uh, and getting a commission on a on a pie like isn't really good business, I guess, because you have to sell a lot of them, and it was local, so uh, and it was local tied to the... Um, to the bakery so in in the end i ended up selling it again uh towards the guy who made the bottoms um to the company i mean made 
like if you practically look at made some profits like a couple of thousand but then i've spent so much money on building the website stuff like that so i probably not even were break even at the end but it was i guess my first experience of being an entrepreneur right and i would i i think it's a complete win man like you went out there you got the trademark you made pies people were buying them and the hard part was it wasn't getting sales or like you know selling the pies it was just uh probably the margins um oh. and the amount of work you had to put in and then you yeah. ended up selling it so really <laughs> you got to exit a founder on your ah. first go it's actually funny i never say i have an exit but i guess if you consider it like that i i have one i guess you gotta exit <laughs> pat yourself on the back i think that's incredible i love when people just go out you know they have a problem and they um they just take it upon themselves to be like you know what i know how to solve this let me just mm -hmm. do it myself right stop waiting on people that's the entrepreneurship mindset, man. I love that. Okay, Skitar. All right, so that's number one. Yeah. Then you move to Yabbers. Yeah. Um, and before you and you, before you speak on Yabbers, a lot of the people going to be listening to this are in uh, America, and I would love to to zoom out and kind of give a background on like where you are, where you're calling in from, and um, and just kind of like give a background on on you just for two minutes here. Yeah. Um, then before, I guess my work, uh, things I'm from the Netherlands, Utrecht, um, I did my internships internationally. So I did my first one in Australia, Sydney, uh, I might dive into that as well. Cause that's like a fun seal story. And then I did my, um, second internship in, in Indianapolis, um, did a sales job there as well, or sales internship. So kind of, I guess, like, I mean, most of my life, I lived in Europe, of course, in the Netherlands, come from a pretty small town. Um, and then I wanted to see what's out there more. So I decided to start traveling a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. And then you got the internships. Uh, first one was in Australia. Tell me about that one. Um, it was really a fun story, I guess. Like I, I, I thought like my English was really terrible in college. Like I think I got a five out of 10, uh, to our graduate system. So, uh, I thought like, okay, how can I prove it just by talking English all day? So I ended up just, um, getting an internship in, in Australia, didn't prepare anything for it. So I just took a flight, booked the first three days of a oh, hostel man. and then just flew there. And then I thought I will figure out over there, like, how can I actually get a place to stay? So. That was fun. Um, I worked in an in a company who organized like sports competitions in the lunch breaks of of office people. So imagine um, you're working in an office and you want to play Samsung against Sony during a lunch break. Basically, play like uh, football, soccer, or touch footy, anything like that. We organized those competitions. Um, but my role was, I guess, like uh, operational, so setting everything up, and I. I was able to play some soccer as well during lunch breaks as well. But like the fun thing, I guess the fun sales story is that that guy, that owner, like he was tough. He was a an, an Aussie and he just uh, like just wanted to m make you, I guess, in this salesperson. So what he would do is he just put me in front of this building, like go in and uh, go sell uh, basically the competition to this company. Like ask for the HR manager and then mm -hmm. pitch. Like, in okay. person? In person, like just actually said, just those doors. Good luck. <laughs> wow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I guess, my first, first hard uh, way of, of learning to do sales basically. And it was, I mean, it wasn't fun at the beginning, mm -hmm. but I think as soon as you actually, people came downstairs, like I, I didn't expect them to come down, but if you ask for a certain person, 
they actually mm. come down and then they were okay having a conversation and then i was like oh this is actually not too bad yeah but you i mean you, you probably had broken english at that time no yeah i mean it wasn't wasn't great but it's also a, a good way uh, for an icebreaker as well so it's like uh, <laughs> right i'm from the never netherlands i'm here with this company let me tell you about it you know yeah and he, he, he just forces me to come in and, and sell you something and it's like oh yeah this is awesome so it's like uh you can always make a joke out of things and then actually make it into your advantage that's a good point um you can always i'm writing that down um because I'm working with a couple outsourced sales firms that stopped cold calling because a lot of their people had accents. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there is a way to get to overcome that accent. You just have to be like authentic about, hey, I have an accent. <laughs> is yeah. that going to be a problem? Do you want to just hang up now or can you <laughs> give me time a day, like at least 30 seconds, sir? Um, and you can always you can always make a joke out of something. You just go write that down. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's that's good. And then you also bring up another point around field sales, in-person sales. Yeah. A lot of people doing online, cold call, email, uh, LinkedIn type sales. What do you think about um, how effective in-person sales is versus online? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I have a completely different opinion now, I guess. Like, I don't think it's um, going to be that effective. Like, it was fun to do, but it's, it's not scalable at all, right? As in, like, you have to go somewhere knock on people's door, actually do things like it depends. Of course, I'm not sure who the listeners are, but what kind of sales you do, but if you're doing anything B2B related, then like, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't do it myself right now. Like maybe to get your, I think I heard somebody say like, it's a great way to get your first 10 clients in. For example, if you sell something really specific towards a certain industry, mm -hmm. uh, you might want to build up that connection. But if you want to go beyond that, then uh, it's, it's just not scalable. Like you have to find other ways. Mm -hmm. That's true. There, in in my opinion, um, there's a lot of noise out there, and it's gonna become more noise, yeah. AI stuff. So, how do you differentiate yourself? And I talked to a sales leader once, and he said, "You can't fake showing up. You know, you can't automate or AIify actually knocking on somebody's door." And he thought that that was gonna be the future of of sales and conversations. It was like you just have to show up in person and show them that you're not you're authentic and you're actually here to help, um, not yeah. just trying. to so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, I guess. But like uh, I'm coming from SaaS. So you, like you always look at your customer acquisition cost, right? So how much people are you able to talk to in a day? How much does it cost you to have that salesperson actually go there? And how much is he able to close from all the conversations he has? So if, if the math works out, then it then it could work out as well. But I would always keep that in mind, I guess. Oh, yeah, for sure. If you're selling a SaaS product, $30 a month per seat, it probably makes sense to go yeah. and knock on a whole bunch of doors. But if it's like 200,000 a year, you know, for a big, you know, uh, enterprise, then it could potentially, could yeah. potentially. So, okay, cool. Appreciate you, you diving us <laughs> into your experience in Australia. I love that. You can always make a joke out of something. Um, that is going to be tagline for this for sure. Nice, <laughs> um, nice. But after Skeeters, um, you went to Yabbers. Yeah, yeah. So uh, after I did the two abroad internships, I came back to the Netherlands. Uh, I studied sports marketing, so basically like uh, commercial economics, but then with sports examples. So my first idea was I'm just going to work at this uh, sports company. So I applied to Nike, which is like a European headquarters here in the Netherlands, some other big brands. But if you don't have the network, I guess, in your own country or at least like within those brands, there's no way you come in. So um 
I ended up at Jarbers, which is like a really corporate um, organization in, in Utrecht, um, did cold outbound uh, sales basically. So like it was the typical uh, cold outbound you can do. So I had to do like, uh, I think 60, 60 attempts per, per day or something like that. Um, four attempts, like have to have 23 qualitative calls, uh, which were basically um, looking at how much time were you on the phone with somebody. And then, of course, you had your targets. We actually have to close the deal. So we did close the deal all the way from, I guess, like um, um, calling to actually closing. So we were able to sell as well. Mm-hmm. That was that was nice. But it was a fun experience because I had months where I, I could achieve my target maybe 200% or like 150%. And then I still got um, fussed about, like, why didn't you reach your call targets? I was like, well, I'm making invoices. I'm trying to close deals. So that was I kind of pick up the phone and yeah, you know, that's, that's not fair, but keep going. No. So that's that. I mean, that's what I thought as well, but I didn't really care about it. It's like, well, if my end number is good, then it's fine. Right. So like, why don't you, why do you care about the input if the output is good? So um, I think that's when I learned, like, it's not always about the input as long as the, the output is good and no matter how you do it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say can't remember now what I wanted to say, uh, but that's kind of like how I got into uh, into cold outreach. And I think like when people do this, like I had days where it just didn't work, right? You could be really good, but yeah, days like if you get a no, and I think I, I read it a couple of times now, like if you get a no, step away from your computer and I guess have a walk, have a chat with somebody. Because I think I had a day where I had three people saying almost no within the first 10 seconds without even me saying anything. I think that like it's almost a bad karma you have. Like if you have that vibe and you're not enthusiastic anymore or into it, then it doesn't make any sense to pick up that phone. So uh that's that's totally true. Uh if your mindset going into a call is oh man, I just yeah. got to know this person's probably gonna tell me no too. The odds that they tell you no because of your tone of voice and all that stuff is just gonna skyrocket. So I, yeah. I that but if you just got like two yeses you're like wait a second everybody loves this product what do i get afraid of then like you know your probability of yeses is is gonna rise as well so that's that's definitely true yeah 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 and i think like uh you will hear it as well like they had these cheesy things where you have like uh, put a smile on your face things like that but in the end it does work right because we're smiling it's probably easier to listen to than if we're just thinking like we have to do this exactly yeah Exactly. Totally agree. And I still cold call for my company now. I read a, I, I led an outreach team for the last company I worked with. And I did that before every call. I throw on a smile. It will kind of lift your spirits. It's kind of strange. It's weird the first time you do it, but it works. Yeah. It, that enthusiasm in the voice that you need. So that's that's super awesome, man. I love that you were in the cold outreach space. Did you like it? Did you like kind of the adrenaline or like what was you just tell me about your experience emotionally with um I, uh, yeah, what can I say? I mean, I, I think it was a good learning. I think it was, it was fun to do because we had a good group of young people. Uh, so I think the vibe around doing it was really nice. I think it's like, it has been, uh, determining my success now, because like you take that steel plate in front of your face away. Like, as we say, that's like, there's always a steel plate, right? There's no shame anymore by picking up the phone. If you do it like all day, uh, long, I wouldn't say I, I thought it was really fun i guess to do but it uh, i did 
see it was a really nice way to just get that done and then um it will help me a lot later down the line so um the fun part is like i always had this envision because the next step would be is to become an account manager because the thing i didn't like is that i closed these deals i you kind of build up a relationship because we did the entire deal and then you move it on to this account manager and he takes things over right where i was like yeah i built this up the relationship at all yeah. these calls and now he's just he's just taking over so I became a account manager, I think, after two and a half years or something like that. Um, and I think I left maybe like a, a half a year later or something like that, because when I thought like, is this actually it? And that was kind of like almost the end of the the line, because there were no future steps, was really my career. So I was like, yeah, is this actually it? Did I, I guess, do everything to get here and now I'm here? Is this going to be my life? So in the end, I yeah, I get left it. pretty quickly. Okay. I... I can definitely resonate with that. Um, when you can visualize the next like four or five years of your life and it's all the same, there's no promotion, there's no next step, there's nothing to kind of uh, run towards. You're just like, well, yeah. now what? I think it's time to get <laughs> to think it's time to get going. So yeah, I, and and especially when things are like when co corporations are big, right? There's all these rules. Like HR has rules for everything. Like um, that company had. In the HR department of I think like eleven or ten people. Like I, I realized for myself, if HR is so big, then it's probably not the right company for me. Like uh, that's that's kind of my philosophy now. Interesting. I never really thought about it like that, but yeah, the HR is to a point where it's it's stable. There's a lot of people in there. There's probably not going to be a lot of room for growth. Um, yeah. Because they hire for that role or you know. Yeah, but there's just a lot of rules, I guess. Like I like the startup lifestyle, so I don't personally have anything against HR. I guess I just like when you're bigger, you need to have it, but it's just, it comes with all these rules. And like, um, I learned it in like, uh, companies later down the line as well, where one point I was like, okay, this is my time maybe to, to leave as well. Gotcha. And tell me a bit more about that, about the rules and like the downside of, um, like for example, I mean, for example, with the, 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 the first example, like, um, there were, I think, two gradations in being like an account manager or something like that. Uh, and it was just a, on paper, right? I got the salary of already like being the highest one because I, yeah, you, when you reach your targets, you will get upgraded and you will get the, the benefits of it. But like they weren't able to give me the title just because I guess they were only having allowing X amount of um, people within the organization who have that title. I was like, well, I'm doing the exact same work. I have the exact yep. same salary is just changing the title and those kind of things like they bother you quite a bit right or if you want to get something done you have to go to this person this person has to go to that person everybody has their opinion it's like in the end you stop making any innovations or any other things because it's just walking against brick walls uh, always interesting interesting thank you for that insight um it's something i never really thought about before but i'm also with you i love how nimble the startup life is how flexible things are how fast things move um, and that's definitely my vibe. Um, I haven't really worked for a large corporation, worked for GE for a co-op, um, but I didn't really get the full experience of what it's like to want to move and progress and be stopped by the company itself. I think yeah. that's really um, And the last thing I wanted to touch on and get your insights on about Yabbers before we move on was you said that you didn't like doing code outreach, but there was a vibe around it. The team aspect was what made it fun. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to to expand upon that um, because I think that's true with a lot of organizations who do cold calling. It's like, hey, it's the team and it's the games we play and it's 
laughing about the nose that makes this fun, not just the cold outreach. Yeah, I think, I mean, for us, and I think it's in a lot of companies, like you do cold outreach when you're early in your career, right? When you're young, um, and you can handle, I guess, a lot of no's. But what also happens, especially here in the Netherlands, is that people go out for drinks, I guess, with their work on a Friday or Thursday or I guess whatever day it is. So I guess those kind of moments where you're like, ah, okay, well, just we'll laugh it off, I guess, at the end of the week. And then you have this drink, you forget about all those conversations. And Monday, you just get back at it. I think that's uh, nice. And like you started doing, I guess, like other activities, because that's the only thing I'm manager can really do to keep the vibe up i just make sure you have fun i guess besides all the no's you're getting so um having lunches together or do uh some some things i guess which makes it which breaks it a bit and uh, which makes it fun um and for us like i mean we had targets and those targets had um commissions against it which made it fun as well so um from the yeses but- yeah, from the yeses, like from the people you do close and you do get good commissions at the end of the month. Um, at one point, we were performing a bit too too well where they just decreased like the bonuses, stuff like that. So that's, I guess that's the other side, right? If you do really well, that at one point, they're going to move the goalposts and then um, they're going to change things basically. So for us at one point, I think it was first individual only, then they made it individual and team basis. So like uh, 60% of your target if you was based on individual performance, 40% on team performance, which made it also to, I guess, help your your colleagues as well, which was nice. Yeah, that that does help the culture a lot. I yeah. just met someone uh, the other day and we were talking about good cultures versus bad cultures. And he was like, bad cultures happen when people don't share knowledge and it's not a team, yeah. sales team. It's just every individual fighting for their own commission, not helping each other out. So yeah. that's a good play. To help build yeah. up yeah and i think in that case it also comes with hiring right like what kind of people are you hiring if you find this one person who goes for himself like at one point even though he might hit his targets like it will end up being about culture people will leave um and don't like it like um i haven't seen it that much but like i know how it can be mm-hmm. yeah um so a couple questions that came to my mind off of this before we jump into your next phase um, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? No, um, I don't. Uh, it's always funny. I don't even uh, like I'm I'm pretty uh, outgoing. So um, like I'm easy to step up to people. Like I think everybody has their own doubts as in like if people are already in a group, you can just always feel like, should I approach them or what should I say? But I'm pretty easygoing just because I played sports, team sports, like all my life. I guess makes it just easier, I guess, as well, just to... Uh, mingle and and especially when you walk into a building uh have to sell <laughs> stuff language <laughs> yeah it's like yeah. uh becomes easier i guess okay all right so so you can talk to people for sure you're not afraid to to jump in there uh and start a conversation that's good and the reason i bring that up because i wanted your opinion on if you thought salespeople uh would perform better or worse if they were introverted versus extroverted yeah, I, I don't think I really have an opinion. Like I, I mean, you see a lot of people having opinions, I guess, like being the type of person they are, right? Uh, I never, I guess I never put myself in a bucket. Um, like I, I never know what, exa- what, what, it, what does it mean exactly if you're in this bucket versus the other one, right? So I think um, 
I don't think it matters that much as long as you, I guess like you're able to to pick up the phone or at least are able to talk to people and you can relate to their problems and you can help them to fix an actual issue. So you don't have to be really outgoing. Um, but if you're comfortable in having one-to-one -one conversations or maybe one to, to three conversations or five, then um, you could be a good salesperson no matter I guess in which bucket you you fall into as long as you can help people to fix their problems because that's in the end why you're doing sales. So it's not... Yeah pushing things uh, through their throat is actually helping them to, to fix an issue. Exactly. That's the, that's the biggest thing. You're there to advise and to help as a salesperson, not just to pitch, yeah. which the salespeople um, struggle with. Sometimes they hop on the call and they're talking for 80, 90% of the call just about how cool yeah. their product is and their company is, but they're not listening and trying to understand the other person's problem and then trying to fix um, their problem with the solution that they have. Exactly. Yeah. So wanted to mention that. Um, okay, cool. Let's dive into lead feeder and all the cool work you did there. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, when I was at Jarvis, I left, I had two uh, really small side gigs where I was like a freelancer doing sales. Um, and then I used lead feeder as a tool myself. So in short, they basically identify who visited uh, the company's website, as in which company visited the website. And then from there, you're able to follow up on them to see if they uh, want to purchase. So I used the tool uh, in the freelancing gigs I had. Back in that day, you had that one button, uh, apply on LinkedIn. It's like um, you just had to click that button and suddenly you apply to the job. So I did that for a role they had in the Netherlands. And I don't know what happened, but I had three Zoom calls and suddenly I was in Helsinki uh, being onboarded to work at, at Lead Peter. So it's... It was a fun one. Like I did, I wasn't looking for a role, but I was using their tools. So it was really easy, I guess, from both sides because I knew exactly the value. Um, I already knew the tool itself. So it was really easy to get going, I guess. And I spoke the language they were looking for. Um, started off in sales. So basically did like uh, sales slash partnerships, but, but it's like, yeah, selling the tool, I guess. Um, but then I was still the only person uh, speaking Dutch. So at one point I sold quite a bit. So I had to do also do the account management. Uh, <laughs> so, you were closing all these deals that they couldn't, or you were bringing in all these deals that they couldn't close because they didn't speak the language. Yeah, or like they just needed sometimes somebody to talk to in their own language, right? Like it's, um, it makes them feel more comfortable, I guess, because if you're just always buying these tools, especially a couple of years back, uh, you're just buying all these tools who you think are coming from the US and they don't have a representation in your own language, then they're like, ah, oh, should I buy this or should I buy the local competitor? But when they noticed, hey, there's actually a guy in the Netherlands working for this company, uh, made things easier. So it's not pure to me, but it's also pure to I actually spoke the same language as, as they did. Yeah. Um, but then... Like I lived between uh, customer success and sales for quite a bit. I think like maybe a year or a year and a half or something like that, where I didn't want to make a, a decision. And I was kind of left open to, uh, I guess, do whatever you want in a way where I was That's still closing head. deals uh, and I can follow up with them afterwards, which was kind of the position I wanted, right? Where mm -hmm. I can sell honestly what the tool can do, and then I can help them to make them successful at the end. Because if you do either or, and somebody sells something which you might not be able to do, or um, you have to, yeah you have to sell and then you have to hand them over. So this was for me like the perfect position, uh, which I created I guess for myself. <laughs> That's good. Did you 
Did you find that to be a problem when you just did account management or customer success where the salesperson would sell something that the product genuinely did not do and you had to kind of break the news to the customer? Yeah. To- I mean, like uh, to fast forward a little bit, when I was at, at Leadfeeder, I became head of customer success. We had around like 30 people in the team. So um we had like 15 customer success managers at one point and when you analyze like the churn reasons of why people would leave we even had a churn reason of like wrong expectations basically and that could be and it's not sales right it could be the marketing messaging it could be uh sales indeed but like a lot of them were i guess regarding that and then it's really hard to actually save them no matter the csm because if people come in with an expectation the tool can do and it can't do it for any reason and you can't save it as a as a CS person. Yeah. yeah. Go to your developers real quick. Can you build this feature in like two weeks for, for this yeah. client? They thought that that's what they were that's why they were buying this product. Yeah, that's definitely hard. And that's probably one of the issues around sales too, is some people just want to close deals, get their commission, and they'll say anything. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, and and I mean I think that happens in any organization is you get bigger, I guess, and especially when uh, funded, like a growth at all costs um, also means that you're going to buy or you're going to hire sales people who are just trying to sell whatever they can, I guess, sometimes even packages which didn't exist, uh, things like that. So it's like, um, it's always hard, I guess, if you just deal with one side and then you have to tell like, okay, well, we don't have that or like how we're supposed to fix it. And then they just, I guess, like, pull it, uh, throw it over the fence and then good luck with it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's, especially when you have commissions, I guess that's going to be in any organization because you can't always blame the salesperson either because they have to uh, reach their, their goals. They have to reach their quota. They have to, they want to uh, get their commission. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that you mentioned in the last company that you worked for that I did want to touch on was changing the goalpost. It's one of the things I hate in sales. Because yeah. you work so hard to build the systems, to figure out the messaging, to hit the goals, and then you hit it, and for like a week you're happy. Then your boss comes in and says, "Guess what? <laughs> we actually need you to to do this, or we're going to lower your commission because you're doing so well." And I I hate that. You yeah. know, have you come across that before? Yeah, and I th- I mean I don't know if I did it myself even as a as a CS leader I guess because it's sometimes really hard like when I put that ha- hat on because um, if you're gonna make these goals right and you're growing really fast and you're doing other things like it's really hard to predict how things would go so on one hand you have to make it realistic and on the other hand like you want to make it of course in a way where they do have to work hard to actually get it so it's like a I get it for both sides. Like I did not like it and I fully understand people do not like it when things uh, move, I guess. Um, and I'm, I don't, I can't remember, but I might have to do it once myself. Whereas like, yeah, this is, wasn't actually like the good goalpost, I guess, to, to, to reach. So it's. That's, it's it's like, for sure. Because yeah, if you're bad at setting goalposts and it turns yeah. out that a really low goal and your people only work two days out of the five, because it's so easy to hit the goal, then that's a bad goal. And you should, you know, try and stretch your team a little bit. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think the the further a company is, the easier it is to set like realistic goalposts, I guess. That's it as well. Because if you're early stage, then and you figure things out, you're hiring at all costs and you're starting to make like your all your first goalpost, then probably you get it wrong um anyway the first time. So it always needs a bit of time um to get it right. 
Yeah, that's for sure. It does make me want to put my innovation hat on and be like, how could we solve this goalpost problem? There's probably just a better KPI or maybe like an iterative check-in just to help the salespeople know, hey, the goalpost might change in three weeks because we're going to do it like a review. I don't know. I'll solve it later, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so lead feeder, you ended as a head of customer success, leading the customer success team, not really dealing with the sales side. Um, and what caused you to, to step out of that role after, you know, you kind of reached the top, I guess. Yeah. Um, like I wanted to build my own business, I guess. Um, so during that time, um, being in sales or being a customer success manager still, uh, I always got this question, like, this is a great tool. Which tool should I use more? When you do all these demos a day, you get sick of that question. So that's when I decided to build like a website, which is called saleslossmarketing.co. Um, like I don't do anything with it right now. Site is still live, uh, but in the good days, it had like 25,000 organic visitors per month. And uh, what I did is I just listed the best sales and marketing tools on it. And then the idea was I'm going to make money by uh, people clicking on a link to buy that tool. And then I'm going to get a kickback fee because um, I, I use affiliate links on it. Didn't really work out, I guess. I ran into a lot of issues with the affiliate marketing tools on, on the market. So I started to like a bit investigate like, okay, well, what's going on? Try to figure out like why are things going wrong? Couldn't figure things out. Get really frustrated along the way. Uh, and that's when I decided to basically build my own tool. So while working, I guess, full-time in uh, head of CS position, I also started building, well, I didn't build myself. I had somebody build uh, Redditors for me, basically. So when I left or when I gave my notice and I gave it like months in advance, um, I said, like, I can't uh, combine it anymore because I have to do sales calls during the day. People want to have calls with me from the team because if your team is dirty, there's going to be a salary request, uh, people need help, ad hoc request, uh, things like that. And then when I'm on a sales call, which is not in my calendar, on the other side, at one mm -hmm. point, like it, it creates friction and it's not good for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the moment um, I left, basically, where I wanted to focus fully, fully on my, uh, my own business. Nice. I love that story. Uh, there's so much gold in that that other startups can take away. Um, it's okay to have a full-time job while you're building your thing, but there will be a friction point uh, between, uh, there will be a friction point around when your startup starts pulling you in a direction and needs more of your time and your business, you know, is the business that you're working for now is kind of holding you back. And that's when you jump out full-time. Um, and when it came to the finance piece, kind of going into like just your personal, like, how do I live kind of piece? Uh, how did you manage finances, your bank account situation? Was Reddit, Reddit just bringing in money at that point? Um, and how did you, how did you manage just the finance? No, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I guess when I left, I had a really good salary. So uh, that definitely would cover, I guess, my expenses to live plus uh, building Reddit is on the side. So I was kind of just putting my salary, I guess, towards uh, the business. So um, that's how I lived like uh, before I quit my job. Then like with Veritas, we did an AppSumo launch, which got us some some first revenue in where you basically sell your software against a one-time fee and then people get access to it. And then um, the good thing is you get like first users, you get some first money in, uh, mm -hmm. which was nice, I guess, to 
at least get things going because we're a marketplace so we needed to get the first user in on one side to get the other one um and that's kind of like how i um did it like i had some stock options for uh, the company for for lead feeder so when i left uh, i had to buy them and then luckily three months later uh, they got acquired like i should have stayed three months longer uh, but i didn't know they were actually um uh, talking about uh, acquiring so hindsight i should have stayed longer but in the end it was the perfect time for me so i don't feel sorry for it i guess um and that's kind of like how i funded the beginning of already this okay gotcha that is really interesting tell me a bit more about the you mentioned the term and it kind of flew out but the term in which you sell your software products as a oh, one-time yeah. for, for your companies i think that's really interesting and that's something that a lot of startups can take away too so tell me a bit more about that yeah People call refer to LTD, lifetime deal. Um, so a typical SaaS product is a subscription-based model, right? Where you pay monthly or annual for to getting access to uh, software. Um, there's a lot of platforms out there, AppSumo being the biggest one, where you can just list your software uh, and then you can do an LTD uh, deal, as they call it. So um, giving, like I think we did, for example, we charged $50 or $60, for example, one time. And people would basically get access to our tool lifetime. So it's a really bad business model, but well, it's, really, <laughs> it's, really, it's really good to get your first users. So if you have a product which is really scalable, um, you don't have to worry about it too much, right? Like it's really nice to get those first users. Like they're not, in my opinion, the best users, I guess, because the people who buy these uh, deals, they don't want to pay full price, but they do want to get all the features. So they have the highest expectations against the lowest price, basically. So I think the biggest thing is uh, make sure that you don't see them as your ideal customer profile and you build all the features they want. Make sure you have a clear product vision and you, I guess leverage them to get users in, find bugs, uh, fix things, uh, get your first money in, but don't build any everything around them, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's good, and it's a term I never never heard of. I'm excited to research it a bit more. LTDs, <laughs> lifetime deals. Remember, uh, so that's how you got your first dollars in the door and started building traction for your marketplace. Then what happened? Yes, like um, something happened which I didn't want to happen, I guess. But we we got the first users in. Like I I started filling the first subscriptions, uh, which was really nice. Like our subscriptions then were only thirty nine dollars a month, so it's really hard to get like a good living out of that. But we were selling like on a on a consistent basis, which was nice, getting more users in. So traction was looking good. But then we realized that we built the app in a complete wrong way. I guess we built it a bit too MVP style, so we used a template in a front end at one point bugs were happening where we didn't know why they were happening, how they were happening and how to actually fix it. Even though it was sometimes just a simple button, which didn't work. And we, it was a hard time to figure out like why. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I left in February, uh, in June or no. Yeah. In June, this started already. So I think, um, we thought like, okay, well, we might just um, fix the bugs and then uh, manage. And then in December, we said like, okay, we're just going to rebuild almost the entire core of the app. So we took six months to rebuild the entire app. Took a bit more of my savings than I than I wanted. But mm -hmm. then at least I had the product and the core uh, I was looking for. So like if you can avoid that mistake I made, uh, it's going to save you a lot of time and money, that's for sure. So um, go for the oh. long term, I guess, and... 
if you were going to do it again, um, you would start from scratch as far as building a dashboard and a product to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe now, even, I guess, like uh, if you want to get them really early validation, you could use the no cool tools, right. Where you can just have that on the back end and then build your own front end, for example. Um, but what we did is now we completed as, uh, the backend completely from the front end, which was really nice because then we knew exactly why things were happening. Like if I would build something again, I would do it uh, like that right from the beginning. Gotcha. Interesting. All right. That's that's definitely interesting because some startups are like, hey, if it already looks nice and there's a front end that's already built, let me just get that, tap it in here, and then I'm lost in a week. But it's not scalable, you're saying. And, you know, yeah, for us, for us, it started giving issues basically. So it's, uh, okay. Uh, and now things are moving a lot faster. Like if we want to implement new features, things like that, we have the core, we have like, how do you call it? Like, um, components so we can just reuse things in the app, um, which we built ourselves. So that's why it took six months, but now development, it just goes up a lot faster. Okay. Awesome. You have a very interesting story because you haven't raised money around any of these ventures and, and Reddit just in yeah. general, but you have how many developers on your team? We now have two full-time developers. Yeah. Two full-time developers. Um, when you started, so you still in lead feeder and you wanted to build this new tool, uh, you had to hire developers now because you're not a developer yourself. Yeah. Did you just use that out of pocket? Yeah. Yeah. So I just paid it for myself and like, um, I didn't know where to start, I guess, because uh, I, I mean, in the Netherlands, salaries for developers are pretty high. So my thinking was, okay, I worked fully remote in this company uh, already, so I'm not going to hire somebody in my own country, which costs a lot of money. Um, so in the end, I ended up hiring like via a platform, which I paid way too many fees. Um, but then when I started working with a developer, he started building like the first MVP. Uh, at one point, like we... He had a friend who came in. Um, they're now both uh, co-founders, um, and we kind of moved away from the platform. So I had the friend uh, work for a while, while the other one was like a sitting out this contract where he couldn't work for me without being uh, with that agency. So it was a bit of <laughs> a stretch, I guess, but we managed. So um, the way I I also funded things is like because um, I had hundred percent shares right I was solo founder so I couldn't keep paying salaries like really high so what I did is like lower salaries because they didn't want they did want to have of course salary to uh, to survive I guess to call it like that yeah <laughs> but I would give them uh, um, shares in return basically so I guess for the salary they dropped they get shares in return so that's how they uh, got also to become co-founders okay gotcha gotcha so you. Um, you kind of substituted the yep. extra stock, and that's yep. that's really smart um, as well. And you probably you made you made these developers champions of your product, right? Yeah, yeah. Like at the beginning, I think I made the mistake of not doing it, I guess. And I kind of changed it maybe this year in in June where. We had a team week and I just went through all the basics you can think of, I guess. Um, but I think at the beginning when I hired them as, as freelancers, like they didn't know completely what they were building and they were just doing what I asked, which makes sense. But then uh, I think in June when we had this week where I kind of explained like, why are we building this? How is this supposed to work? What are the clients asking? Like, what is our ICP? 
what problem are we fixing? What are we trying to achieve? And I did it with the current two developers. And then I think that sparked something where they were thinking like, okay, now we know actually what we want to build. And they come up with a lot more suggestions, I guess, than what they did before. And what we did, I guess, like uh, just a couple of weeks back is we came together again, uh, flew all to, to Hungary. We had around like 30, 35 client calls in that week. Um, and that's wow. where they got a lot of feedback as well. So like I did all the talking, um, but then they were in the call and then we could basically discuss after the call, like, okay, well, what he said this because he wants X, Y, Z. I could give a bit more behind it. And like now I... I get so much, I guess, like suggestions, I guess, like, hey, should we do this? Or why don't we do this? Like, yeah, this is clever. Like, uh, I, lo I love this. So yeah, um, not champions from the beginning, but they're definitely becoming champions right now. Mm -hmm. So you kind of learned how to build a team and build a culture in which people know yeah. your vision um, and everyone kind of owns that vision. And then yeah. more passionate, they start putting forth other ideas and everything like that. I love that, man. I love that. And that's a great way to get the development done at the beginning and, and, um, you know, continue to grow the platform. So cool. I have so many questions, so many things. I want to <laughs> oh my gosh, this is so good. But I recognize we only have 10 more minutes um, for the podcast before you have to get going. I did want to talk about the growth that you've seen with Redditors thus far and where you guys are at right now. Um, and just walk us through quickly kind of what what that hockey stick curve or like up down kind of roller coaster curve look like? Yeah, I mean we're still really early, early stage. Mm -hmm. Um, like the, I think the thing we're doing is we have a freemium model and uh, we charge based on the value our clients are getting. Like which is I think a good thing. That's also a bit my bottleneck being um head of CS. I guess in my previous role, I want to drive so much value that I kind of undercharge. I guess the the product we have. Um, so we started off at $39 a month and now I doubled the pricing like a couple of months back to $71 a month, um, but we still have the freemium model. So a lot of the clients we have, I guess, started in the free model, they hit a certain tier where they generate like 1k monthly recurring revenue via our platform, and then they have to upgrade. So like when you look at our MOR, I think we're now at, uh, like 4k ish. So really low still. Um, but when you look at the growth of the network, which is for me the most important part, because it's the, the end value, like that's really nice. Like we, the number of affiliates is growing 11% month over month. We now have around like 7,300. At the end of the next year, we're going to have 25,000 people recommending B2B SaaS uh, companies, basically. So um, the thing we're doing, like we do need to get more money in because we're not uh, profitable yet. Like That's my biggest milestone right now. Um, and what we're doing is because we now built, uh, we went through this long ride in building this network, uh, we're going to make it like a two-sided marketplace. So we have 7,300 affiliates where they can basically apply to become an affiliate of a program where we're going to turn things around, where a SaaS company can basically see, filter, and contact um, the affiliates on the other side. And becoming a bit American here, uh, I basically just created a mock-up, um, had those 35 client calls where we showed them, okay, this is what we're going to build. Uh, would you be interested in this? And now we actually started to sell um, the mock-up in a way like we're going to build this, going to be ready in February. Uh, do you want to join the launching program? And we just got the first clients who said yes to it. And this is like um, 
we sold it against it a discounted price of 60%, uh, but still the base value is $200 uh, monthly recurring revenue. And then they have to pay up front for the uh, for an annual package. So that's going to help us to uh, build up the bank account. And you're fund the fund the operation. That's amazing, man. That's that's super, super cool. You're really like taking reps. So yeah, in the American startup land, it's like, okay, get users and raise money and then get more users and raise more money. Have you thought about that path or have you thought about crowdfunding? Because you have a pretty large following now um, yep. and potentially do a crowdfunding or even donation type funding route. Yeah, if people want to donate, feel free. Uh, no. Go ahead. So, no, no, go ahead. Uh, no, so like we, I, I did talk to uh, some investors, um, like people call them pre-seed, seed investors. Like I don't know how, how you should call them, but I mean, the typical answer I got is in, I asked them, at the, like I, I'm i pretty straightforward, I guess. Like um, I got twice the answer as in when I talked to them, like, okay, we'll come back when you have 10K monthly recurring revenue. I said, well, you do pre-seed or seed, right? Yeah, yeah, but come back when you have 10K. So after getting that advice, maybe two times, three times, I asked at the, the next investors asked, do you invest in the stage we're in? This is our MOR. This is a client base. This is the product. Do you invest in the stage we're in? Yeah, yeah, we do. So add a couple of conversations. Come back when you have 10K MOR. It's like, ah, okay, no. So I got sick of it as in um, you created a pitch deck. You have these conversations. You spend a lot of time on it. And in the end, it kind of hurt like the growth uh, we were in. It's like, okay, just I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Like when I have 10K MOR, I probably don't need them anymore anyway. So uh, why why don't I just focus on that? Um I might um, consider still doing like this this community round, as you mentioned, because like I do run my own podcast as well, getting sure. to all these people who wrote a book, uh, which a lot of people uh, read probably when listening to this. So I was like, I should do something with my network, as in um, why don't I just do a really small round where I get people invested in the company and like make them part of my success, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so that's probably something I will investigate between Christmas and New Year's. Okay, how do I set it up? What are the terms? Can I do it with the, the Dutch entity we have? What are, I guess, the legal uh, implications? And what price do you put on the startup, I guess? Like, uh, <laughs> well, valuation cap, yeah. Exactly. Like it's, I mean, there's so many different calculations. I had so many podcast shows regarding this as well. But in the end, it's yeah, what the crazy person gets for it, I guess, as we say in Dutch. Uh, yeah. That's kind of still the phase we're in right now, right? If you on on the revenue, then we're probably still pretty worthless in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at the potential, then it's going to be really uh, interesting. So it's like a a balance, balancing act, yeah, and kind of you know risk on all sides. But I think I definitely think with the type of business you have of the marketplace and trying to build a following for all the reasons, it could definitely make a lot of sense uh, for yeah. you to funding route. So. Yeah, look into it. If you need any help, you know, I'll, I'd love to share the resources I've I've come across um, and, um, you know, also want to be a part of your success story because I am on Redditus and I have other clients of mine that I'm like, hey, we need to get you on Redditus so that way we can help blah, 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 blah. We'll talk about that later. Um, but all right. So I want to pick my last question wisely. And then I do want you to give an overview of Redditus and affiliate marketing. I'll mm -hmm. Just, just so people know, because I actually had no idea what affiliate marketing was um, before Amir connected us. And I think it's amazing kind of growth technique. So because that's on my mind, I would like you to answer a question around 
marketing or sales when it comes to uh, startup growth? Should a startup focus more on marketing aspects? So putting stuff on LinkedIn, maybe ads and stuff like that, or the sales aspect, cold calls, door-to-door, all that stuff. Yeah, I think it fully depends on, I guess, like what is your average deal size? Like um, if your product-led growth, if your deal size is maybe, you know, to pick a number, I guess, uh, lower than $1,000 per month, then you probably want to focus more on the marketing aspect. If it's higher than 1000 like your sales-led, then you have to focus more on the sales part. So it all starts, I guess, with the, the numbers. Like in our case, for example, um, like the subscription started $71 a month. Like there's no way for me to probably um, make up for the cost if I would just have like a team of people doing cold calls because they have to bring in their salary back. But having selling like $71 per month packages, that's going to be tough. Like they have to sell a lot to actually earn their own salary. And then uh, we still have to make money at the end as well. So look at your... um, average deal size basically and then figure out what is uh, working best for you but i mean my personal preference would always be like do marketing as well like be out there uh, build a brand Uh, that's what we're doing right now we might do it a bit too early uh, because normally you would do this later down the line but in the end this is going to help us later down the line so um we're building this brand like i now get recognized at events where it's like uh, and people say like hey we're using ready this when they see my sweater so it's like the brand is out there. Um, so I don't think you can, yeah, uh, start too late with that. Gotcha. Yes, I, I completely agree. And we just now started with Suede to do a lot more uh, marketing and just like my own personal LinkedIn is becoming my just voice uh, oh. to the world and you know, getting reactions and just telling people my thoughts is all um, something helpful to get your brand image out there. So yeah. awesome, man. Well, tell us about Redditus. Tell us about affiliate marketing and why people should care. Yeah, so I mean, we uh, you just asked a question, right? Do you, should you do sales or marketing? Like, I think both of them are always direct marketing, right? You have your ideal customer profile and you want to target them directly. Like, what affiliate marketing is, it's like indirect marketing. So you're asking somebody else uh, to do the marketing for you. So think about associations, agencies, consultants, publishers, bloggers, influencers. There's always people who have access to your ideal customer profile in bulk. And that's basically where affiliate marketing comes in. Um, you ask them to start promoting you. And when they deliver you paid clients, which is important, purely paid clients, you're going to give them a kickback fee in return. Um, like we at Reddit is purely focus on B2B SaaS. So what that means is it's higher ticket prices because it's B2B and it's recurring commissions because it's a SaaS or software as a service. So that's why I love affiliate marketing within B2B SaaS because everybody gets better from it uh, long-term wise, basically. So if somebody would start recommending Suede and then uh, they would use an affiliate link, they could get X percent for X amount of months. So in the end, they do get a really good number uh, at the end of the uh, the funnel, basically. So that's basically affiliate marketing, recommending uh, a software and getting a kickback fee in return. Nice. Nice. All right. I'll definitely, definitely appreciate that. And um super excited to to have you on the show. How can people how can people like get in contact with you and see your content? Yeah, so I mean uh contact me on LinkedIn, but make sure you mention that you uh, you listen to to this podcast because I mean not to brag, but I still have 300 open requests. And if people don't leave a message, then most likely I wouldn't accept if if I don't see any value in it. So make sure you 
say you listen to this podcast, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. There's only one Jorn Hoffman, so uh, that should be easy to find. Nice. And I'll definitely put that in all our socials. So thank you so much, Jorn, for, for joining us. This was super, super insightful. Uh, so many good nuggets came out of this for me and hopefully for our viewers. And I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Likewise. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.